Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. You know, nothing in like philanthropy school prepares you for managing a diverse staff in a time of war. I mean, nothing prepares you for having a few people on your staff that are deployed into Gaza um, or whose spouses were to having also people on your staff, you know, close colleagues whose cousins are in Gaza um, and are having to evacuate where they are or have been killed. Hey, listeners, it's Mishi. As you can hear, I'm a bit under the weather. So our annual listener drive is now officially over. And I want to thank each and every one of you for your generosity and for saying loud and clear that you feel there's a need, especially these days, for our brand of storytelling. Storytelling that amplifies the diverse voices we're hearing among and around us and tries to capture slivers of life right now. Though our campaign was a big success, we still raised only about 10% of our annual budget. And while most of our funds come from foundations, we do rely heavily on listener support. Which is to say that if you want to pitch in, and didn't get the chance to do so during the campaign, you can always head to our site, israelstory.org, 
and hit that wonderfully tempting support us button. And that's actually a pretty good segue into our episode today. Because one of the most heartening aspects of the war was the manner in which people around the world, and especially Jews around the world, rallied behind Israel and started sending over money, equipment, and support. There are all kinds of estimates floating around, but most of them talk of upward of $1 billion, some say even significantly more than a billion dollars, that were sent to Israel since October 7th. And that too is part, even a major part, of the story of the war. For years, Charlene Seidel, the executive vice president of the San Diego-based Lishtag Foundation, has been at the forefront of the Jewish philanthropic world. The Lishtag Foundation supports all kinds of causes, both in the States and here in Israel, but their main local focus is Jerusalem, and specifically bridging social and economic gaps in the city. They've given life to hundreds of grassroots initiatives and have created what's called the Jerusalem Model, a diverse network of social entrepreneurs, activists, and leaders from all sectors around town. Jews, Muslims, Christians, religious, secular, you name it. Now, because Charlene and her team have been nurturing and cultivating these relationships for so long, they were particularly well-situated to understand the needs on the ground in the immediate aftermath of October 7th. Mitch Ginsburg and I sat down with Charlene in our studio in Jerusalem to get a peek into the mindset of a funder during these difficult days. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Charlene Seidel. I'm um, executive vice president of the Tag Foundation, and I spend about half my time in San Diego and half my time in Jerusalem. Um, I think I've always been somebody that's sort of never felt quite on the inside or the outside of any group that I'm in. I'm sort of a consummate, I think, like insider, outsider. And my dream is to have all the possessions that I own in one carry-on suitcase. Maybe that's being the granddaughter of survivors, I don't know, or many, many generations that had a flea in minutes. And where were you when the war broke out, here or there? Um, well, it was still October 6th. <laughs> I was in San Diego. It was Friday night. It was my birthday. And actually, I'm not really into birthdays, but I had sort of a weekend of plans. And I had gotten home from Shabbat dinner. And I was just like, ah, you know, there are these sirens from time to time. Like, don't worry about it. It happens. And then, though, I started to get more insights sort of from the ground, still very garbled about what was happening here. And so I was up all night, you know, trying to just like text with people, understand better just what was happening, looking at the news. And there was no clarity in anything. I was feeling very, you know, helpless in San Diego, incredibly helpless. And what's that like to be so far away and to feel helpless? Um, not not pleasant to feel helpless, especially when you like to be in control. Um, I felt like I was somehow transported back in time, you know, seeing scenes that I had only read about, you know, in, in history books. I felt like I was listening to my, my Berlin-born grandfather who left Berlin after Kristallnacht to go to South Africa and actually didn't even talk about his experience until he was like in his 80s. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm very much like shaped by my Jewish upbringing and Jewish identity and Jewish education by my experience um, 
of being brought up as a religious Jew and um, as being brought up also by the children of immigrants who themselves were the children of refugees, who were also the children of refugees. So um, I felt like I was in a nightmare that I couldn't wake up from. And I have felt like that for many, many weeks afterwards. So what does one do in that kind of state? I mean... I was in a privileged spot where I had the trust of both people on the ground and people that were anxiously, you know, wanting to know behind the headlines what was happening and to devote resources to that. And I, I always tell our team that we have the ability working in a foundation to look at a newspaper headline and to not feel powerless and to feel like I can do something about this. You know, even if it's a small, tiny thing, those small things can add up. Mm-hmm. You know, I told so many people, and I really feel this for myself, like each of us is going to look back at that day. I mean, it's going to shape our life, I think. It's changed each of us. And we're each going to look back and we're going to say, what did I do that was within my power to make things better for people whose lives have been torn apart? And so I really wanted that answer. I wanted to be able to tell my niece and nephews and, and others in that, like, what what my answer to that was. Um, and so we just started to, like, send, you know, some resources over to the people that we already trusted. That was the thing. We already had a network of people on the ground that we trusted that were very, very close to the needs across sectors. And I mean, needs were changing by the minute. We couldn't like worry about, you know, reports or anything like that. I mean, we didn't set any fundraising goals. And so within hours, I think on the 8th or the 9th, we just set up like a page on our website and send an email and we called it the Israel Emergency Grassroots Response Initiative. And in it, we said, First of all, you know, here's a a fund you can give to, and it's just going to be, you know, used for people on the ground. But also we said, look, these are flexible funds, and it's different from what we often advise in terms of strategic philanthropy, which is to really understand the need. Uh, And I gave advice that I've never given. I just told them, like, don't worry about duplication. Don't worry about, you know, who's doing what or giving too much or giving to the wrong thing. You can't go wrong. Give to everything. Like, give to anything that asks you. They just need funds, and it's going to be money well spent. And how did that go? I'm really proud to say that well north of 500 people have now donated to the initiative, um, most of them from San Diego and really with very, very little fundraising, really no fundraising on our part, just people that were very moved to, to do so. And did you stop to think and take it all in or was it just like, go, go, go? I was in action mode, and so I wasn't really analyzing anything at the time. I was just like doing and getting texts. Um I was just so happy to have anything to do that I was, you know, fine with it. You know, I mean, I wasn't sleeping, that's for sure. So it didn't matter what time of day it was. I was spending a lot of those, you know, non-sleeping hours just sending texts to people like in East and West Jerusalem and starting to like get, you know, a sense of, of the fear that was very pervasive. And that's really what I think it was. Like, that's where the emotions were coming from across the board was fear. People were so afraid. And this kept me, this role, this doing role kept me from going insane. It's actually much harder, at least for me, to be like thousands of miles away reading headlines in terms of helplessness, because even if you can do things from overseas, you don't get the nuance of what's happening around you. You don't even like, you know, for all I knew, my street in Jerusalem was just a total war zone and there were tanks on the street. Like, I didn't know. So then when did you come to Israel? I was very lucky because I already had a flight scheduled on October 12th on Al Al. A lot of you know people were scrambling at the time. And I remember being struck because it was me and like 
it was all people that were going back because they had been called up. Um, usually it's a flight, especially after a holiday that has a lot of, you know, families and, you know, active children. And there were no children on this. Like it was me. And, and they were like really curious, like on the flight about me. I was, I think, the only person with just an American passport. I mean, the people at Alal asked me, why Why are you going? Do you know what's happening? Um, and I said, yeah. And I'll say that my, my parents were, like, shocked when I told them that I was going to go. And, and then I used, like, every mode of manipulation that I could. And I said, like, well, what do you expect? You know, you raised me to be this Zionist and you don't expect me. But for me, like, it was, again, for my own mental health that I went because I felt not that I can control a war, but at least I would be there. And at least, like, it would allow me to re- gain and recover from this sense of helplessness that I that I really felt. And what was it like to arrive in Jerusalem? It felt um, both at the same time um, totally heartbreaking because the streets were empty and, you know, actually the first hour, an hour after I arrived, there was a siren in Jerusalem and, you know, people were, were running around. I was actually on a walk. I I went into my California earthquake mode, not really knowing what to do, um, which actually isn't far from what you're supposed to do when you're outside and there's a, a rocket siren. But also it was very, very reassuring to be back here, to be on these streets again. They fill me with an energy and a desire and a like drive that I think was very, very meaningful. And I was, you know, I mean, I came with a little bit of trepidation, but it was more um, like I really felt this is going to be like better, you know, to be here. And it was to like to just be here, to be able to talk to people in person. And um, then I started to realize like the the power of that role of the in-between more than I had ever before felt. And I went to East Jerusalem um in the first 10 days after October 7th. And I think that really actually like meant a lot to show up. And it wasn't like showing any allegiance with anybody. It was just uh, on a human level. Like these were friends and colleagues and people that were I knew were working to make a difference and trying. Mm-hmm. And so what were you hearing from the grantees there in East Jerusalem? So that they were afraid to leave their house, that um, they were afraid to go to work, that they were didn't know what to tell their children. They were afraid of the sirens. You know, they were afraid of rockets. They were afraid of what was going to come in terms of reprisals. They were just afraid. Um, and I heard, you know, in those first weeks that more than 100,000 people, in fact, weren't going to their jobs in the other side of the city, most of them because of fear, but also because some of them had been, you know, fired. Okay, so you were checking in with a lot of your grantees yeah, I would like spend when I was here days like talking to people with, I mean, just very, very painful stories and visiting people who had lost loved ones or whose family members were being held hostage or who had been evacuated. And it was like terrible. There's like pain coming from every direction, you know. Right. And what did you tell the grantees? My constant refrain was, we're in like the earliest days, we're in the earliest weeks. Everybody's extremely emotional. I told them this is not the time to be going out and championing the word peace. I felt, and I still in a way do, that it's almost a trigger word, peace. It's not productive. And the time will come when people will be ready to hear the message again, but you can't talk to people that don't have the ability to take in or to hear what you're trying to say. So so how do you know where to direct your energy and what to support? Um, in the early weeks of this, I couldn't rely on my intuition. I had moments that 
um, I couldn't make a decision and I didn't have a strong, like, this is what we need to do. Like certainly around managing the diverse staff and like in some of the early staff meetings, those were moments of uncertainty that I feel uncertain all the time. I mean, that's my life, but I usually can kind of rely on an intuition and a professional basis um, and then just kind of go with it and have a little bit of confidence to go with it. And, um, and I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't, I didn't have any intuition. It almost felt like I do when I'm navigating direction on the street, I have no sense of direction. So if I have a feeling to go one way, I go the opposite way. Like I felt that way about my intuition. And that was a moment that, that shook me because I felt like that was what I have to offer. I mean, what else do I have besides, you know, that I'm not somebody that can like engineer something or go and save people's lives, you know, in in the South or, but I can try to advise or help or, you know, and I have to rely on my intuition. So not, not having that, not being able to rely on intuition, that certainly shook me. There were many moments of despair but one of the most moving experiences was being in one of the hotels um, where the evacuees were and like all of a sudden seeing this, you know, big group of um, Haredi women that showed up um, uh, with huge laundry baskets of like folded laundry. And, um, and I was like, what, you know, what's going on? And I guess like this group from an adjacent neighborhood had just, you know, shown up one night and like thought to themselves like, well, what do these evacuees need? They're stuck in, you know, hotel rooms. Well, they don't have washing machines or dryers. They don't have anything to do with their clothes. So they, they went there every single night and they um, picked up the dirty laundry and then they would wash it at home and then come back with clean laundry you know, really like that really resonates, like the need to hold the human. And so getting those like very raw perspectives, you know, um, was really um, formative in thinking about I'm a control freak and how can I, you know, get back some kind of ability to influence. And looking ahead, where do you think things will go? I mean, everybody's talking about the day after, right? And how do you know it's the day after? And I'm not sure that we are going to know necessarily. Um, I don't know that there is going to be a day after. I think that's magical thinking. I think a big question now for philanthropy is when does philanthropy become a, a crutch for government? When does philanthropy need to just get out of the way so that government can, you know, do its job? And I, I don't think there are clear answers because we're not over. We're not in post anything. We're in this. I mean, this is a marathon and a sprint at the same time.
שתיתי משקה כבר נעים לי לא קר רציתי לנסות להתמיד לכתוב מגינה שתביא את העתיד שלי שלך, שלי, שלך הגלים של סן דייגו לא רוצים להישבר מזמונים שלך כתבתי I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.